Well, welcome to The Journey. Um, I'm Kevin Polkey, and uh, Ellie Weiss is with us uh, this morning on The Journey. And um, The Journey is um, just conversations with ordinary people um, about stories of transformation and how we may have had setbacks in our life and how we persevered through those, how we've learned from those obstacles, and how they've you know, maybe helped us um, on our path today. And yeah. so, uh, so Ellie, I, we met last fall, and yes. um, and I know we have some different individuals that we know, uh, very similar how it is in in Rockford. It right. seems like it's just a couple of degrees overlaps. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And so, um, but before we get into your story, um, I always like to ask about what do you do for fun? What do you, if you have an opportunity, I know you just wrapped up uh, one segment of school. Yeah. And so, uh, uh, but what do you do uh, if you have a, some downtime, if you have some opportunity to have some fun, what do you do? That's a good question. I, um, I really enjoy like reading. Okay. I'm a big leisure reader. Um, I like to work out, obviously. Okay. I've been an athlete like my whole life, so exuberating uh, energy that way is sure. important to me. And just seeing like friends and family, okay. I value. But I'm a big traveler, and I'm going to Europe this summer, so oh, wow. I'm extremely okay. excited for that. Yeah. So where in Europe are you going to go? Uh, Madrid, Madrid, Barcelona, and Paris. Okay, so Spain and France, primarily. Yes. Okay. Yeah. My you... mom's best friend is actually from France or okay. from Spain, and like that's it's an easy flight to go to Paris, so we might as well see it while we're over there. Sure. Yeah. Have you ever been to Europe before? No, I've never yeah. been out of the country. Okay. Yeah. I've been to Canada and Mexico, but I've never been to Europe, and I would always I'd like yeah, to go. Yeah, I'm excited because their history is so much longer than, like, anything we can see here. Yeah. So I, I'm excited. You know, it is interesting when you when you say that if, if we compare the American culture as far as the United States American culture, right. um, it's only a couple hundred years old, mm -hmm. and compared to Europe, which is hundreds of years and yeah. uh, it would just be I'm excited uh, to see yeah. the architecture yeah. and it's just phenomenal really because if we think about hundreds of years ago like the even utensils they had to make these things were so minimal mm -hmm. but they made the most extravagant structures yeah still to date so it's just remarkable really yeah. well that'll be a fun I, I definitely want to hear how how that trip goes yeah. for you so so when you said you you read for fun like if we were going to look at the different books that you read what are, what are some of the books that you read um I my favorite book's The Last Lecture oh. by, I'm pretty sure it's Randy Poulsen. Mm -hmm. I um, think so, yeah. I really respect that platform to write about, and I think it's phenomenal that he took the time in his deterioration in life to just reflect and write about things, and I think it really puts things in perspective. But I'm very interested in World War II, okay. so I read a lot of books on the Holocaust and just really what we did over there and our involvement i'm like i like reading about history okay yeah because i think we can learn from the past and things that occurred yeah sure i've uh history is definitely my um so whenever we're playing trivia pursuit that's the, that's yeah. the category that i like the most <laughs> Mine too. Uh, so i've i've always um always read biographies even when i was younger and you know more age appropriate but those are some of the earliest stories that i remember yeah. reading about and um, and so yes, there is definitely some fascinating things, and so yeah. it'll be very cool for you to be in Europe okay, and yeah. have a have an interest in um, yeah the history yeah with Spain and then especially especially with France. So, yes, so I'm, I'm very excited to see what they have to offer. Well, I also have to say congratulations. You just um, finished <laughs> up uh, the first leg of your education. Yeah. 
um, graduated from Illinois State, mm -hmm. and uh, so you're a Redbird as well. I graduated yes, from there yeah. a few years ago, um, <laughs> and and so no, your degree was in what? Um, psychology and a minor in biology. Okay. Yeah. All right. And did you go there all four years? Or? Um, I went to UW-Milwaukee okay. my freshman year, and I was in their pre-nursing program, but it wasn't really what I understood it would be because you have to try to get readmitted into the nursing program. Mm -hmm. And sometime, my year, they over-admitted. Oh, okay. So there were a lot of pre-nursing students, and I just am more realistic, and I knew the odds would not be in my favor. Okay. So I transferred to Illinois State, and then I'll be in an accelerated bachelor's of nursing program next fall. Okay, and where are you going to go do that? Um, Loyola in oh, Chicago, okay. yeah. nice. So it's only 16 months, which oh. is really great. Okay. So it's only a year and a half of suffering, but so, I'll get through it. <laughs> so then it'll just be the nursing part of it? Yeah. Okay. And then I'm going to look to get a job with hospitals that do like tuition compensation for graduate school okay. I'd like to become an infertility nurse practitioner Oh, okay. and I need like a few years of experience first working in a hospital and then I'd like to go back to school full-time okay. to just get it done yeah okay. so what what led you into um, that particular or thinking you want to go into that type of specialty um, well my my parents my dad had cancer in his late teens and early 20s which like caused him to have a lot of difficulties having children. Okay. And my mom has PCOS, which is another um, sort of syndrome that can affect women's fertility. So my parents had extreme infertility issues and I was exposed to that as a kid because I knew like when my parents said I was a miracle, like they meant it and I would go to their appointments with them after me to try to have like more children. Okay. And the doctor at the time, Dr. Holden, he still practices in Rockford. I just, he's like a savior to me. He always would tell me how like infertility doctors and practitioners are so needed. Mm -hmm. So me going the nursing route, I think it puts a different spin on things because nurse practitioners are really coming into like the medical field Very much full so. force. So that's like a different route to be involved in infertility. But I think I have like a very well-rounded understanding okay. since my parents went through it yeah in your own personal experience of being an only child right yeah and in your parents it sounds like your parents yearning um for wanting to have uh, more children yeah okay you you said and i apologize P pcos is that um what? yeah polycystic ovarian syndrome okay it's pretty common in women they mm -hmm. say i'm pretty sure it's one in eight well one in eight women experiences infertility so it's likely a lot of them have pcos i see okay yeah. And so, um, so growing growing up, this this was um, part of what your um, part of your family, right? Was it just mm -hmm. part of what what was yeah. uh, the what was going on? And your it sounds like your parents were very open with you. Extremely open about yeah. it. Yeah, okay. I think they wanted me to have like a better understanding of like because as a little girl, I was so ready to get promoted to being a big sister to someone. Sure. But, like, they wanted me to understand, like, the reality of the situation, that, like, it wasn't very likely, and it would just be me. Okay. And now I'm totally okay with that sure. in so many aspects, but it does have, like, its downfalls for sure. Sure, yeah. sure. So you, um, you graduated from around here, from the Rockford area? Yeah, Hananiga uh, from in Hananiga. Rockton. Yeah. Okay, and then... Um, are your parents from this area as well? Yeah, or? both of my parents went to Hananiga. Oh, did they? Okay. They didn't meet in high school. I mean, they knew who each other were, but they okay. met 
um, when my mom's senior year in college. Okay. Yeah. Right. And then what did, what did your mom, did your mom work outside the home? Uh, yeah, my mom is a, educa- a public teacher, school teacher. She's oh. an educator, and so is my dad. Okay. Yeah. And where did they work at? Which um, in Beloit, the okay. Beloit school districts, yeah, the public schools. All right. And, yeah. and th- did they work in elementary? Did they work in the secondary level? Um, when my dad was alive, they actually both taught the same grade. They both taught second grade, oh, really? which really worked out for them in terms of, like, lesson plans. I bet. And they could plan, like, class activities together. So it was, like, killing really two birds with one stone. And now my mom teaches fourth grade because their school district did a lot of revamping and rearranging teachers around to see where they would excel more and where they were needed, yeah. Did they work in the same school or did they work in different Different schools? schools? Yeah, and their schools were very different clientele bases. So it was very Mm. interesting as a kid because I got to go visit and like visiting your parents that are teachers, you're like royalty because yeah. you know they talk to those kids about you all the time. Sure. So even when I was their age, they'd be like, "Allison's here, Allison's here." Interesting. And yeah. it really it fed my ego for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's fun. Um, and then you played. You said you played sports, and mm-hmm. and so what sports did you play? Um, I figure skated pretty much my entire life. Okay. Um, I got into that when my parents put me in gymnastics. Okay. They thought that I should try figure skating, so I did. And I played soccer, tennis, and golf. Okay. Yeah. And and so with the figure skating, it's I had a friend of mine growing up that she was a figure skater, and the the amount of training and practice yeah. and ice time was was incredible. Um, yeah. And so, uh, how did you have time for the other sports? Um, when I was in middle school, my parents made me choose. Mm-hmm. Well, mostly my mom made me choose between soccer and figure skating because I did travel soccer. Mm-hmm. So it was just such a time-consuming thing. We had practice so often. And I was like, I, I was realistic. I knew figure skating was not a sport in high school. Mm-hmm. And I actually, ironically, didn't play soccer in high school for Hananiga. But um, I thought I would want to have the experience so when I got to high school, I would be prepared. Mm-hmm. I knew Hananiga sports were very competitive mm-hmm. because my parents went there and were athletes there. And, yeah, but I got back into figure skating in high school. It's just something I couldn't. It was really hard to say goodbye. And I taught figure skating lessons okay. at um, Carlson Ice Arena for okay. a few years, yeah. So in middle school, you had to make the decision Mm-hmm. At that time, being young, you make the decision based upon thinking what you wanted to do yeah. as far as Hananiga goes, and then decide not to go out for soccer. Yeah. And um, I really fell in love with tennis. I started mm-hmm. playing tennis probably in kindergarten. I went to summer camps. Okay. But I loved the dynamic in high school of the team, and I felt as an only child, you were it was more individualized as a sport, and when you had a partner, you were like pretty much stuck with them. So it wasn't like the whole a whole team working together. Okay. It was just you and one other girl, and I did that all year round. Okay. And I just really loved tennis. I actually played tennis at UW Milwaukee on a club team, and we went oh. to Arizona for a national tennis tournament, and oh, that was like the time of my life. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, and, and so to give us just a little bit, you talked about the idea of, you mentioned a couple of times about being an only child. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and at first it was this desire to want to have a sibling. Yeah. And then now you've kind of you've kind of settled in, so it's, yeah. okay, I get it. <laughs> but um, yeah. so what was it like? I, I have a younger brother, so I have no idea what it's like um, to be. When I was really little, well, my dad, so he got ill with cancer when he was in college. 
So he actually didn't finish at a four-year university. He finished at Rock Valley, and he went back to college when I was born. He was, like, extremely motivated to give my mom and I a better life, and he really wanted his child to have parents that both had an educational background. Mm -hmm. So he went to Rockford University. It was Rockford College then. And he would take me to his classes with him in the baby carrier. So ironically, some of my teachers were my dad's classmates at Rockford College. Interesting. And so when he was, he was a Mr. Mom, my my family would say, because he stayed at home and Mm -hmm. he just went to school. So he was like the best play pal because dads are like always going to do exactly what you want them to. And then as I got older, my dad got sick. It presented so many problems because my mom's loss and like what my mom was going through was like the person she married and her life partner and Mm -hmm like the love of her life that was her loss and my loss was my dad and there was nobody in our household to bounce it off of like Mm -hmm. well dad's doing this how do you feel what should we do Mm -hmm. like there was nobody else my age that I could relate to right okay and with my mom's loss I almost felt like it was more extreme than mine because we all know that we're going to lose our parents at some point in our life but like for her she was very young and just had all of these years left that her and my dad had planned together and it just wasn't going to happen anymore so it was very hard to like even tell her like this is how I'm feeling Mm -hmm. right now and then obviously in college it's really nice financially to be an only child (laughs) because nothing has to be equalized really (laughs) it's just you so no sharing yeah (laughs) that's a benefit sure sure. yeah so um so dad had cancer. Uh, what type of cancer did he have when he was Hodgkin's in college? Hodgkin's lymphoma. In, in college? Um, they think that he got it when he was a teenager, and okay. he just didn't know. Okay. He, like, found out because he had a lump on his neck, like one of his lymph nodes was swollen, and they he had it. And then he went through treatment for a while, was in remission. It came back. Okay. Then went into remission again, and he met my mom when he was in remission. I yeah. see. Okay. And then... Right after my parents got married, he had blood in his spinal cord. Mm-hmm. They think it was from the chemo and radiation, probably. And he actually couldn't utilize his legs for about a year, is my understanding. Wow. Yeah. That, that so, so how soon after they got married, did you say? That about a year or two years, yeah. After, after they got married? After they were married, okay. yeah. So, so this was not necessarily exactly what either one of them had planned. Yeah, and, and the doctors really did not know what the outcome of that would be okay. because blood in your spinal column can be extremely fatal and yeah. just dangerous. So he went through that, and he used a cane, I think, for like a while after, but I obviously did not exist yet, so yeah, yeah. I wasn't there for that. And what kind of athlete was he at Hananiga? Um, he played, played baseball okay. and golf. Okay. Yeah, All and right. basketball. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. So he he had been a competitive athlete, and now he's having this condition that is, at one point, not only threatening his life, but now that goes into remission. He's married. Everything's supposed to be going in the right direction, but now his mobility is being compromised. Yeah. And so how long after, let's see, after they were married – did you come along? Um, I was born in 1997, so about five years. Okay. Yeah. Right. But they started trying to have children um, like a year and a half before I was born, two years probably, yeah. Okay. All right. 
and so um, and so that's when dad was a stay-at-home uh, stay-at-home dad mm-hmm. and he, he worked at going back to get his uh, getting his degree yeah. and, and obviously just by the way you're talking about it that the the connection between you and your dad was was very strong yes uh, unbelievably during yeah. those during during all those early years yeah and um, and I I know for me with um, with my son after my son's my oldest and after my daughter was born it was the opportunity then because my wife ran out of hands right so right. She, because of having two children now yeah. and um, it was an opportunity for him and I to to grow a lot closer so I remember doing very much the same thing I was coaching at Harlem at the time and in the weight room and I'd bring him and the carrier into the weight room yeah. and and so some of the guys that I know who are now adults and back coaching and, and teaching they remember me bringing him in there and yeah yeah so uh, very much those are some of my fondest memories of yeah my um because I, I just graduated as we talked about but um, I was looking back because I was actually there when my dad graduated college, and mm-hmm. I, like, you could have not ripped me apart from him. I was so proud. I, like, wanted everyone to know that my dad was graduating, and he was very proud, and it was just, it was a very good memory to reflect back sure. on. And, and how old were you, do you think, at that I time? was three, yeah. Three, okay. Yeah. Wow. And you remember this. Yeah, and yeah. I remember, like, right after my dad was done, he was, like, you know, in the groove of school, so him and my mom mutually decided they were going to go back to get their master's degrees right away mm-hmm. because at the time there were, I mean, I think there's always benefits to furthering your education, yeah. but at the time there was a lot of, like, financial compensation through school, right. their school district to go back to school, mm-hmm. and so they went back together, and I experienced that with them. And okay. that worked out very well for them to okay. be in the same ballpark again. Okay. Yeah. And it sounds like they just had just an amazing relationship, not mm-hmm. only uh, being together, but <clears throat> working together, or at that time going to school together, yeah. and then later working together. And, so. and my mom was a very much an advocate of me having the time I needed with my dad. Mm-hmm. So when she was a teacher, she always opted to do summer school because she knew when she was at school, it would give me and my dad like the alone time together mm-hmm. to bond and do probably whatever I told him to do. But sure. um, <laughs> yeah, my mom was very much a good role model growing up in terms of what a relationship should be like and how two people should treat each other. Sure. And not knowing at the time that my dad's health was just gonna decline so immensely, I'm very grateful yeah. that my parents had the relationship and I had the relationship with my dad because I'm very aware that a lot of men feel pressure to work when their kids are young and mm-hmm. make a lot of money so when they're older things can be easier mm-hmm. and I'm just so glad my dad didn't choose that route because yeah. now I have so much to look back on and be grateful for. Yeah, yeah. very much so. Um, so as, as you're talking, you're, the cancer came back. And, and it sounds like it came back uh, pretty harshly. Well, actually, so in 2006, my mom's and my dad's school district wanted them to do routine stress tests just for insurance purposes, mm-hmm. which is a pretty common yeah. thing. And my dad's did not come back the way it should have, mm-hmm. like, at all. And I, like, vividly remember this because I came home from school and my grandma was at my house, which wasn't super weird, but it was weird because she was very, like, kind of off my mom's mom was at my house. Um, she was very, like, off-kilter, mm-hmm. sort of, and they found out my dad had a qu- needed a quadruple bypass. He had four clogged arteries. Oh, wow. And it likely was from he... So Hodgkin's lymphoma's in your neck, and 
he had a lot of chemo and radiation mm. in that area. So they think that it could have caused a lot of long-term damage. Mm. And so within 24 hours, he was having open-heart surgery. Okay. And after that, like that was the day that my childhood was over. I just, I was talking to my mom about this last night. I said um, how a lot of adults say like, oh, you really should appreciate this time in your life. Like I can't even remember when I transitioned into like a real adult or whatever it may be. And I can remember like the day my childhood ended. Yeah, tell 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 me what what so changed. So when my dad had open heart surgery, I was so little I couldn't be in an ICU. They a lot of hospitals have a lot of rules for that. So so you would have been what age at this time? About seven or eight. Between seven, seven or eight. Okay. Eight. Yeah. All right. So for second grade maybe. Mm-hmm. Okay. Second or uh, yeah, I was in third grade. So third but I'm a year younger. Yeah. 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 Um, and so I couldn't see him for many days, and I just was so convinced to my mom. I said he's dead, and you're not telling me, and. I don't think he's alive anymore. Why can't I see him? Because to a kid, it's so confusing when your dad's in a hospital, but you can't see him, but he's not having surgery anymore. And, like, it's just there's all of these unknowns. And when we first went in after surgery and I could see him, I knew he was not going to be the same again. And my mom and my family was so mad at me for saying that because I was so little. And I just said, nope, he doesn't look at me the same. He doesn't look the same. Something's wrong. And from there on, I was not a kid anymore. And I wasn't really, I mean, technically I was my parents' daughter. But very soon after, my mom and I became a team, and our work was to take care of my dad. Mm -hmm. So it's just amazing to think back because even when I see pictures of myself, it's very hard to recognize like who that person is mm-hmm. because I had no idea like mm-hmm. what was what was really coming in my yeah. life. I just the doctors explained to me and I think most children understand what depression is. Mm-hmm. And I knew it was he would be sad, but I also had this image of my dad like I knew he survived cancer and I thought he's untouchable. Like yeah. he has to be invincible. There's no way that anything else was going to take him down. Yeah. And I even thought if cancer came back in his life, like he would, he beat it two times, he'd beat it again. Sure. And yeah, it was just, I never would have expected it to go the way it did. So the, do you, are they thinking, or do you think that you said he had depression? Was that as a result of the quadruple bypass? Um, yeah, the surgeon and a lot of the team of doctors explained to us after having such a traumatic and invasive surgery because I mean they crack open your sternum and just completely open you up it's very common to experience like depressive episodes after that but it was like with my dad I think it was much more extreme because I remember my parents talking about it and my mom is very bothered by this now that the doctors told my dad his insides were much more aged than his like chronological age Mm -hmm. And I think that really, like, did something to his psyche to know Mm -hmm. that my insides look like maybe I'm 15, 20 years older, but really I'm – he was 39 when he had open-heart surgery. Yeah. I know that I have, um, in my – on my mom's side of the family, there was um, – well, every one of her brothers, her three brothers and her her father all had heart disease and all had heart attacks starting in 40. And I remember my my one uncle – I remember seeing him, he had a heart attack, and then, you know, a couple weeks before that, and then I went up to the hospital to see him, and it was just like what you just said. He was not the same. Mm-hmm. And 
and I don't know if he was ever the same After again. That. I mean, little little bit of spark maybe, yeah. but but never fully um, as much. And um, and I so I did some research with that, um, and because of the type of trauma that the heart. Um, it had the impact on the heart with the heart attack yeah. and then the open heart surgery, which typically go in that, in mm-hmm. that order. Um, there is depression is, is more common than not, right. not just because of, of, of thinking that's now your life is going to be different or, yeah. or, but there's actual, the chemical imbalance that happens as a result of the trauma. Yeah. And, um, and, and so I don't know for sure, not being a cardiologist, right. how much, yeah. how much that is, is true. It just, um, it sure made sense to me as I was watching my uncle and then later reading about that and having some, some clients um, afterwards and working with their family members and working with them, yeah. that there was definitely some correlation there. I think I really like, I mean, I think most children can understand depression because, I mean, in every hospital room there's the scale, like mm-hmm. the frown face to the smiley face, yeah. and I just thought it was just going to be a sad face, mm-hmm. but it really spiraled into so much, and with my dad's body being how in the state that it was, um, a year later he went under the knife again for a thoracotomy, which is um, lung surgery, open like lung surgery. Um, they tried to drain it with a needle first, but my dad could not take like the pain. I just can't even imagine how painful that would be. And so they cut open his back, and his body just was covered with scars. He had to lose his spleen during, I think, chemotherapy, so he had a very large scar from hip to hip. Now he had a heart surgery scar, and then he had one on his back. And it was just like his body looked like the battlefield that like his mind was going to become. Mm-hmm. And I think, in a sense, it's like almost just such a image to think about. But he, with the lung surgery, there were complications during mm-hmm. that. And I think, I think my dad got so sick because he was on like a ventilator and mm-hmm. oxygen for just so long. Mm-hmm. It's like I wonder how that really affected sure. his brain. Sure. Yeah. It complicating because the depression had already, as a result of the. Of, of the trauma to the heart, yeah. the depression had already started setting in. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where I think um, we're, um, where people sometimes get confused. That we're not just talking about, oh, your life's going to be different depression, situational depression, which clearly was also at a risk. Factor, yeah. But there was something biochemically going on because of, the phys- because of his physiology yeah. had now changed and had gone through such a trauma. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about now... Um, you're this seven, eight-year-old, mini, little adult, right? Yeah. Um, though, of course, mom and dad probably didn't want you to be that way, but now right. we're in survival mode. Mom's in survival mode. Dad's in, you know, dad's trying to um, yeah. I- I also survive um, or, or be existing and moving yeah. through everything. Um, so what was it like with um, having uh, having a parent who, who you clearly have memories with of such a strong bond, and he was your, he was your playmate. He, he was, was my he, best friend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the thing about mental illness is it's very common in terms of symptoms, you know, across the board. But for individual people, it can be extremely different. Mm-hmm. And for my dad, as his mental health started to decline, he would come back sometimes and be the dad he was when I was a little girl. 
and my mom and I, she just remembers me. We were talking about it this weekend because I was talking about what to say. I wanted to make sure I got his like history right. Sure. And she said, I just remember you running into the bedroom sometimes and saying, Mom, Dad's back. Dad's back. you got to come out here. He's back. He's back. Mm-hmm. And sometimes he would only be back for five minutes, mm-hmm. and sometimes it could last a whole day. Mm-hmm. And it just felt like I was constantly getting hit by a train because it's like he's back but I know he's not staying. Mm-hmm. And when is he gonna go again? Mm-hmm. And at first my mom and I would be like, my, well, my mom, his name was Dean, so my mom would be like, Dean, this is what you're doing. Like, like, what should we do? We don't know how to help you. Mm-hmm. But like when he would come back, it would just make him so sad because he could not believe that. He was almost like disassociated with what he was doing when he was sick. So it was very hard and eventually we learned like we're not gonna mention what he did. We're just gonna appreciate the time and do whatever he thinks to do and I'm very grateful for like those moments. You know, it's interesting. I think I think I've, I've had other people share the same thing is that at some point we we let go mm-hmm. and and we want to you know, uh, I think a very common human thing for us to do is point out to someone you know, this is what you did when you were under the influence of alcohol, or this is what you did when you were under the influence of depression, as if somehow that realization would then cause the person when the depression comes back to not do that. Yeah. But if that was such an easy choice, then they probably wouldn't have done it in the first place. Yeah. But like after my dad's lung surgery, it's like I picture, you know, cartoons with like huge boulders rolling down. Like the lung surgery, I think really got the, oh, sorry, got the ball rolling in the terms of the mental illness. Like Mm. Shortly after that, he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which, as we know, is similar in a lot of ways to Mm -hmm. depression because you have extreme lows and extreme highs. And it just became a medication mayhem. Every psychologist we saw, psychiatrist, well, here, take this, take that. This will fix it. And at the time, obviously, he had so much anxiety just from his medical background. Like, Mm -hmm. his life was unbelievably difficult in terms of what he had to face but he started taking Xanax and I remember it's ironic because when I was a freshman in college like the Xanax phase was so big for people and I would just think this is what ruined my life Mm. and all of these young kids are taking it because a side effect of Xanax is um, craving alcohol that's like Mm -hmm. a common thing so I not only had a dad who was suffering from physical like illnesses he was suffering from mental illnesses and he was drinking Mm. and it was just like the worst trifecta you could get Mm. I had and I had to learn very quick when who to call when he was having episodes and how to react Mm. and how to explain to a 911 operator that my dad is mentally ill and when the police come he might not remember what he just did or what was going on and that's why I'm like so eternally grateful the Rockton Police Department was very understanding to my dad's illness and they always treated him with so much respect. Mm. And I just, I don't know what it would have been like if they were not so aware or I guess compassionate towards people that are sick. And I just, I don't know, you had to learn really quick. And yeah. So this was the Rockton Police that you mm-hmm. guys worked with, okay. Yeah. And, um, and so, so he was prescribed Xanax, mm-hmm. and then as and as one of the side effects from Xanax is this lower inhibition, mm-hmm. and, it, and it and it definitely has the capabilities of lowering that initial wave of anxiety, but 
the body builds up such a tolerance to it so quickly that either you have to use more Xanax or you have to self-medicate with alcohol. We were at a point where my dad would pop Xanax like they were Tic Tacs. Mm. And just who he was, like my dad was not his mental illness, and I will never think that. I, it's something that he struggled with and battled. But like to me, my dad was a warrior mm-hmm. always. Just sure. he fought so hard, even when he was so sick. And once the Xanax was prescribed, I just feel like from there there was never it was a tornado mm-hmm. because then in middle school he got so he was just so angry and mm-hmm. it's like I would be angry too I think because not only do you have cancer and then you have difficulty having children but now you have all of these physical ailments and then you have a mental illness like I don't know how he could have kept anything straight mm-hmm. but in middle school it got so when I was in middle school it got so scary in our house that I would sleep with my mom mm. because her bedroom door locked and we never knew really what my dad's behavior was going to be like or if he was going to drink. And sometimes he acted like, you know, he was under the influence of alcohol, but it was just his medication. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So at one point he was on 14 different antipsychotic. And that is, like, really hard to swallow now after sure. studying what I did and learning yeah. how many people should actually be on. Yes. It's, yeah. like, insane that any doctor really allowed it. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's, it's very unfortunate. That's, that's yeah. for sure. And I just remember, like, my childhood was over when my dad had heart surgery because he really needed every, every, like, soldier he could really have in his, like, realm. He needed it. And I was ready to be there and help my mom with whatever she needed. But once he was sick, it was like psychological warfare every single day. We never knew what he would be like, and it just spiraled so quick. How, and if it did, um, it may not have, because it sounds like you had a a very good foundation. Mm -hmm. But typically, um, in situations like that, then we start, questioning ourselves and questioning because in, as a result of mental illness sometimes then they're not they're obviously not who they normally are without right. without the influence of the mental illness and so sometimes the 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 caregiver um, the family members will question themselves uh, because they'll hear something coming from a loved one and, and not be able to discern that this is the mental illness talking. This is yeah. the addiction talking. And was there ever any time period where... My most pivotal moment was February 15th. I still remember the day because okay. every year it's my dark day. Okay. And I just... Until I came to college and I had a professor where I wrote a paper on my dad and he started to have me speak to freshman classes about okay. mental illness to kind of end some stigmas and stereotypes of what it's like. Um, February 15th, my dad was removed like from our house when I was in 8th grade and... Um, he just had a very bad episode that day and he looked at me in front of all of the police officers that were there and in Rockton it's kind of funny because there's not much going on so pretty much every police officer that was on duty would be in our house so there were about six or seven police officers and my dad looked at me and my mom and he said he was going to kill us and he said he would come back and he was going to end our lives and I looked at him and I remember thinking what did I do Mm. like why is this what my dad, who I know loves me, yeah. is saying to me? And why 
does he feel this way? What, right. what did I do wrong? Right. And why is he so angry at me? And why is he angry at my mom? We are taking care of him. Right. Like, I was so confused, and I really felt extremely scared. Mm-hmm. But throughout my middle school experience, he was very angry, and there were times when I was riding the bus home from school, and I'd think, am I going to come to school tomorrow? But he never had said it out loud. It was just like an internalized fear of what his illness was doing to him, and his behavior was very erratic. And I knew it was never my dad. I always had, I always knew he loved me. Even when he said that, I knew he loved me. But you started to think, did I, what did I do wrong? Sure. Now. And, and, and obvious, I mean, not obvious, I remember taking care, helping take care of my grandmother when I was growing up. and. And, and different grandparents and family members, and it can be frustrating. There's no mm-hmm. doubt it can be frustrating. And so I imagine when dad makes those comments or is angry and then makes that comment and you know that you've had your own thoughts, even if you didn't verbalize them, mm-hmm. sometimes for us that's enough to connect. And then we go, oh, he knew, or, oh, this is why. Yeah. How did you, what did you do with that afterwards? Because dad, go, I'm assuming at that point dad was brought to the hospital. Yeah, um, he was brought to Swedes a lot because okay. they have the psychiatric, psychiatric facility yeah. here. And my godparents, actually, one, my godmother is a nurse, and okay. my godfather was my dad's best friend since okay. they were, like, little kids. So they were just saviors to us throughout my dad's illness. They would help take him to the facility and stuff. But after that episode, I just remember thinking, I don't think he's ever coming back again. Okay. And I knew, like, he couldn't come back to our house because he said that in front mm-hmm. of, a room full of police officers, which just goes to show how mental illness really kind of eliminates any conscious decision-making. Because somebody who consciously meant that probably wouldn't say it in a room full of police officers. And it was set in stone. It was written on a piece of paper, a police report, and you can't go back from that. So, And because his illness was so... Um, unpredictable it sounded like because there were so many variables that were playing a part into it and and the physicians were not um, were not able to get a handle on it there was what level of trust could there ever be right and you really didn't know who could help you I knew my mom is just a savior to me in so many senses because she to be strong enough to have to say to like the person you love almost the most in life that they can't live in their home anymore and you have to separate yourselves from them is is like hard enough but doing that to someone that's so sick mm-hmm. like makes it even more difficult and i just feel this overwhelming gratefulness that my mom chose me mm-hmm. like because i think we both knew deep down that if my dad came home he would find a way to like do what he said he was going to do because um, it wasn't him and it was he was prescribed seroquel which, if you're susceptible to mental illness, can cause schizophrenic symptoms. So we think that that is what kind of triggered him to go into the mindset of, I'm going to hurt you now. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he was never, he was always very angry, and sometimes as, like, just a haphazard, you would get, like, in the way of his whatever rampage or rage mm-hmm. or whatever, but he never deliberately was attacking us until he started getting medication to help him sleep. And then after that, it was like he would yell at He was just so angry. Yeah. And that sometimes the anger was hard for me as a kid because, you know, parents can get mad at their kids, but not like that. Like right. that was another yeah. level. And, like, doctors wouldn't even take his cases. My mom would take him everywhere. 
and they would call the words they used was a medical suitcase. He's a medical suitcase. We don't know where to begin. We don't know where the problem started. And so we can't end something that we, if we don't know where it even started from. And it was hard growing up. Like you said, as a kid, it's frustrating to take care of someone. But for me, it was, I was going to these rehabs with my parents and I, I don't know what nine or 10 year olds know how much rehab costs Mm -hmm. per month. But I did, Mm -hmm. and I knew, oh, my dad has a week where he can't call anybody, and then he'll be able to talk to us next week or whatever. Like, I had such a weird skew on what life was like. And my mom and I were, I talked to you about it at the walk I had, like, we were so ready to shield my dad from any stigma and stereotype. My mom's parents didn't even know my dad was sick until I was in middle school, and it really was out of control. Mm -hmm. Because up until then, my mom and I could control it. We knew, like, oh, he drank too much. We have to, this is what we have to do. Or, oh, he took too much medication. This is what we have to do. And Mm -hmm. we didn't really involve, we didn't want to involve anybody. We kept it between my dad's dad, my mom, and myself. And Mm -hmm. it kind of, not purposefully, but it put a stigma on me. Because it was like, how am I ever going to tell anybody Mm-hmm. about this if like I know my mom and my grandpa want us to keep this in our house sure. so once it like let loose it really just splattered everywhere talk a little bit about because um, you've been talking a lot about dad mm-hmm. and and understandably so but talk a little bit about for for you what was uh, what was it like to have the burden of that secret, the burden of that silence, and what was that like, and and how did you stay grounded? Because it just was, I can't even describe it really. It was like almost like a loss because how do you explain to middle school girls why they can't sleep over at your house or why you don't want to sleep over at their house? Because I was so worried about leaving my mom home with him, mm-hmm. and I knew like if I'm there, I can protect her, mm-hmm. and. I can protect our house from whatever could come to it. So there were so many stressors, but there was no one to talk to. Mm -hmm. And it was just like you had to internalize it, but it was fight or flight. I was either going to survive or I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And my mom was also very good at, I never missed sports practice when my dad was sick. Even when he was in facilities places, she always made sure either she took me or my grandparents took me or my godparents took me to whatever sport I had. So I had that as an outlet, and I think... That really helped because soccer is a very aggressive sport. Sure. And that was a good energy releaser for what I was going through internally. But I think mostly I was just a very, not to like toot my own horn, but I was like a very selfless kid. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted my dad to get better. And like whatever was going to come our way, I could figure out a way to deal with it, whatever it was. So this this internal... uh, internal belief Mm -hmm. that you had of the possibility of getting better no matter how bad it was was there that hope was always there always and and then also your mom in the midst of all this chaos um, worked hard to um, provide that structure Mm -hmm. of you going to school provide a structure of you involved with these extracurricular activities Mm -hmm. and so definitely the framework was there and maybe because how you were as, as a child and in being able to do what you did um, in, in the resiliency that you had and not necessarily, I mean, like you said, that you didn't have a, a certain aspect of a childhood where you're just going off and doing whatever. Yeah. Um, 
So, so maybe all those things with a combination. But mm-hmm. So this happens in eighth grade that dad's taken away, February 15th mm-hmm. of your eighth grade year. And then tell us what happens then because your dad died when you were 15. Yeah. And so dad stayed at another place once yeah, you got out of the hospital? so he lived with his dad for a while. Okay. And my dad's brother ended up like coming in the picture to help okay. him and he bought him a house in a neighborhood so my dad had a place to live and I'm very grateful for that because after going to school and studying psychology I really learned a lot about the places my dad could live but at one point my dad was homeless mm. and I was on my way to tennis and he was standing on the street mm. and I remember seeing him and I felt like I was in shambles and my my relationship with my grandparents my mom's parents is very great now and it always has been but my grandpa is very serious in a lot of senses and he's also super goofy it's like a weird combination but I remember calling him because my mom was going to go back because like I can't imagine what it's like to see those like your life partner just standing on the street homeless and I remember calling my grandpa because I was going to try out for some travel tennis team that sure. day, ironically. So it's like, how this, how would it happen? But sure. it did. And I remember him saying, like, it was going to be okay. And that was, like, one of the first times throughout my dad's illness that anybody told me that it was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm so grateful for, like, his comfort in that moment because it was really hard. And I thought, how many of my friends have seen my dad? Mm-hmm. Like, because I, I didn't tell anybody about it. And that was so difficult so after that he like lived with his dad he sometimes lived wherever he could and then he had a house Mm -hmm. and when he died he was put in like a medically induced coma and he Mm -hmm. passed away but um he had caretaker i mean he needed caretakers because like the thing about mental illness sometimes is it's almost like being a babysitter in a Mm -hmm. sense because the behavior is so unpredictable like a five-year-old like you never really know what they're gonna do and it could just be anything and everything so he had people to take care of him and but I'm really grateful that he was given a place to live in a place of like his own to live especially well and I think it just as you mentioned I mean mentioned earlier today that mental illness there's there's a continuum right Mm -hmm. of, of individuals who have uh, adjustment disorder, right? It may come in for counseling or therapy for an ad- for adjustment disorder, which is a transient type of uh, condition. It's a response to a traumatic event or a change or whatever it may be. And then you have um, uh, the the complications that your father had, not only from from a medical standpoint, a, phys- a physical standpoint, but then the chemical imbalances that as a result of that and the complications with the medications and 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 self-medicating and all these different things that were going and so there's this whole continuum of right not everyone who's mentally ill is going to have the same situation as your dad did yeah and and not everyone your dad being example is just going to be able to talk it yeah talk it away um, yeah. And so, or just reframe it, or and so there's there's some it, it, it's it is much more complicated than than people um, think. Yeah, we'll take yeah. into consideration. So yeah, it was like before he passed away in high school, I was only focused really on sports, which mm-hmm. when I applied to college really came back to get me. I mean, I didn't do awful, but I did average, and I knew I should have done better. But I have to think back like that was one of the big regrets I had, and. 
I had to think back, like, I was so scared all the time. Mm-hmm. And I, my dad lived very close to my high school, and I thought he could show up if he so chose. Because yeah. when I was in middle school, he actually showed up to my middle school intoxicated, mm-hmm. and nobody else knew he was intoxicated, but I knew because I was living it. Sure. And it just, to me, it sent a message, like, I can do whatever I want whenever I want. And I thought, I hope he wouldn't do that at a high school. Yeah. Because there's so many privileges to living in a small community, like seeing people you know often. But in terms of somebody suffering from a mental illness, before mental illness was given these platforms to really talk about. When my dad was sick, it was a very hush-hush thing. But everybody knew about it. And it was a stigma that was pressed on my mom. It was pressed on me. People couldn't be my friends. People used my dad as a punchline that I was like in high school with. And it was just like a shadow kind of that followed you. And I just remember always being so scared he would show up at school because I thought, like, that would make it so much worse. Like, whatever I was already dealing with, it would just really. So so on February 15th, everything goes from being under wraps mm-hmm. and and being within, within these handful of people that know about it. Not that there wasn't a burden of that as well that secret but now with the with the series of events that happen afterwards the hospitalization um live now no longer living with your mom and you um it sounded like there would be episodes of anger and he would leave leave whatever house he was staying at and then he would um, be homeless for a time period and then go back and mm-hmm. and those were the it became even more erratic about and more chaotic at, at that time period, but now everything's exposed. The secret that yeah. you were keeping inside, mm-hmm. the silence that you were keeping, now is splattered everywhere. And like my dad had friends from high school that he would contact, but then I went to high school with their kids, and I don't blame them for having conversations in their house. Mental illness, I understand, is a very interesting thing. Everybody's so curious about it, mm-hmm. and I get that, but a lot of them were misinformed or misunderstood so then it brought it to school and I just remember people saying that my dad's schizophrenic and I was going to be schizophrenic Mm. and I was like well no and it was just really hard for me to deal with the stigma because I wanted people to like me for me I wanted to have kind of a normal life and I wasn't given that and it was so frustrating so then I just internalized everything And once I was at ISU, I wrote a paper on my dad, and a professor asked me, like, would you be comfortable coming and talking to my freshman psychology 101, you know, Mm -hmm. sections? And I was like, well, I could try. Mm -hmm. And right when everything came out, I felt free. It was Mm -hmm. like whatever stigma and stereotype people placed on me, it's gone. I know who I am, and I know what I lived through, and I'm a survivor, and I really just want to, like, celebrate that and I think it was right when I spoke I felt this overwhelming need to raise awareness to mental illness I thought like I learned in my classes how many people don't make it out of the situations without going a bad route themselves or make it out just in general and I thought like I'm given this privilege and Mm -hmm. I feel that I need to talk about it and then my senior year at ISU, so this year, I was feeling a lot of anxiety about my dad not being at my college graduation because, like, I was at his. So it's, like, kind of reversed. And I remember thinking, like, I felt like I couldn't breathe and I thought I was having a panic attack, which I probably was. 
and I thought I should probably go talk to someone. I think mm. it's time for me to talk to someone. So then I went to group counseling with okay. a bunch of other kids who were grieving and also anxious, and it just was a very enlightening experience for me. And so it's ironic because my dad died when I was 15, but I didn't heal mm -hmm. until I was a sophomore in college. I didn't mm. start healing sure. from it. And yeah. now I like fully can embrace everything. And yeah. it's like, whatever questions people throw at me, I'm ready to go. But sure. at first, I think if anybody would have addressed it, I would have been like, well, I don't know. Like yeah. I need to ask my mom or something. Right. Well, it, it, it would make sense. And you know, you and your mom and dad were so close. Yeah. You were very close with your dad. And then as his illness mm -hmm. had taken on shape when you, were, when you were eight years old, then your mom becomes a, a teen. Mm -hmm. And then dad dies your freshman year? My sophomore year. Sophomore yeah. year in high school. Yeah. And then um, and then obviously your mom and you are still very close, which not only what you've gone through, but just because dad, it, it's hard, right? Because right. There, there have been all this tension and all this chaos. Um, there's multiple levels of grief right. that happen when, when someone dies prior to, and they didn't get well. Right. And yeah, I remember thinking, because my mom, I had a tennis tournament the weekend. My dad died, and we weren't there. Um, he died in the hospital, hopefully, with his family. Um, but I remember her telling me, and her, she just blurted it out in the kitchen. She doesn't think she does, but she did. Um, she's like, I just, I have something to tell you. And I thought, oh, boy, is dad in jail again or something? Yeah. Like, all these things run through your head. Like, what did he get in trouble for yeah. this time? Yeah. Does he have an attorney? Like, yeah. and then she just blurted it out that your your dad's died, and I was like, he's dead, like gone. And she said, yeah. And I remember thinking, I really am glad that he's at peace now. Mm -hmm. But then, now I do not feel that way. At the time, I did because I know he was a prisoner in his own body. Yeah. And, like, he just, the misery that he felt, I can't even fathom. I don't really know if anybody who hasn't gone through that themselves can understand right. it. So at the time, I was like, he can finally rest. Because right. I don't think my dad lost to his mental illness or his physical illness. I just think he needed a break. Mm -hmm. And that's what I, like, tell my mom now. I, like, say, I don't like to say that. It overcame him. Mm -hmm. I just want to say, like, he needed to rest mm -hmm. because it's just a constant battle, especially if it's your body. Because for us, it was like a warfare, like the psychological mind games that were played on us and with each other. Because not, I, there were a lot of things my mom and I did wrong, and I'm very open to it after mm -hmm. learning in my major. Sure. And that caused a lot of distress. I would call my mom crying, and I would say, "Can you believe that?" this is how we said this to dad or we did this. Mm -hmm. I don't know how I'm going to deal with this. Mm -hmm. Like, and she just always says like, we did what we knew to do at the time. Right. And we worked with the cards we were dealt and that was it. But over time, it's just like, you feel so different about things. Yeah. And now it's like, I wish he was here. I wish he could have lived longer to like beat it. Yeah. Cause I, I really think that maybe now with how, mental illness is treated and spoken about it would be a totally different ballpark that right. we'd be in but yeah. it didn't work out that way so ultimately he was put into a coma it sounded like yeah i think he had pneumonia maybe he okay. probably caught that okay because his immune system was often very compromised as you right. can assume with being yeah. cut open so much okay sure but, yeah okay 
so it was the complications of the illness as well as lifestyle and everything all together yeah and it just split apart our family pretty much like I was very close with my dad's dad my whole life we were he was the my mom's dad is the very um mature and like like advice giving grandpa and like my dad's dad was like the let's go play and like do something like crazy and it split apart our family because when my mom chose me and us and to survive it was not like taken as like they're doing this because they have to Mm -hmm. it was like they're abandoning Mm -hmm. my dad but your mom and dad never got divorced no they just had to be separated separated yeah so there was maybe even in that maybe still a hope that your mom still clung on to maybe even a little bit. Yeah, I mean I think I think we all did and like when we reflect back on it too there's so many people to be grateful for like yeah. when my my dad would get in quite a bit of legal trouble um, in terms of you can get DUIs for prescription medication yeah. and stuff and I'm very grateful like when my dad had legal defense they were very understanding to mental illness and like what he was dealing with and the people in our lives even like our our side i guess like i would call them our team they like really understood why my mom was making decisions she was making and did for my dad but it was just hard to see when you lose your dad it's very difficult and then when your entire family is ripped away from you that's like the ultimate sting yeah because it's like i can't have him anymore and now i can't have you and i just i i was a kid it's like i didn't really have a choice in the matter and it still like burns obviously because i graduated college and none of my dad's family was there Mm, to celebrate it but i understand them and i understand like the choices that they made because i mean everybody responds to things differently well, like you said, your sophomore year in college, when you had the opportunity for that your professor asked you to speak to this younger group of students, yeah. and how all the energy and angst that may have gone into doing that, but then the liberation you got, because now you broke the silence, you shattered that silence yeah. that you had been under, and you now, uh, from that, you got a greater sense of what you want to do and, and a purpose. Um, I know when you and I met was actually at a suicide awareness walk. Mm-hmm. You had the sash on, though. You oh, this, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was a county fair queen. I um, had never been involved. I did it once before because my mom was like, well, I paid a lot for your prom dresses, and you should try to wear them again. So I'm like, oh, okay, I'll do this like county fair pageant. That's fine. And then once I spoke at college, I was like, I want to do it again because I could use this. To like do what I want to do sure. and Mr. Floor the principal at Hananiga when I called him and I just said like my dad's a Hananiga alumni and he was mentally ill and I would love to have an event here to raise awareness and he was like well I will send out an email and we will make it happen and I like to credit my Winnebago County Fair Queen title yeah. to that but it could also be because I went to Hananiga yeah, sure yes. yeah yeah so so but was that part of um I know that uh, Danielle, right? Yes. We talked about Danielle, and uh, she had because you had won in 2017. Danielle won in 2014, 14, I think. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, 
uh, I know there's a, a time period where you also have to do a talk, right? Mm-hmm. And at, at the at the at the state level. At, at the state yeah. level. Oh, at the state level, not at the county level. Oh, at the county level too. At the county level, I talked about the value of time okay. because my time with like my dad and my family unit was cut so short. Yeah. And I really like try to express to other people to appreciate your parents and appreciate even if they're not married appreciate the time you have with them because like you never know what's going to happen and what things can flip the switch like so easily and then at the state level i talked about stereotypes and giving people equal opportunity without being bullied okay because i don't like to say that i was like bullied in school because i just like don't really like the term but it was bully. I mean, that's what it was. It was trying to shrink someone down. Sure. And yeah, so those were the topics I talked about. But Danielle was the queen the first year I did the pageant. So like by default, she's just my favorite queen. Yeah, and she's my grandma's favorite. My grandma like loves watching her on the news every day. So I don't know if you know this, but Danielle is engaged to my my nephew. Oh wow! Yeah, and so I will have the opportunity to marry them in November. They're getting married in November. That's so they, exciting. They asked me a couple uh, about a month ago or so. That's an I, honor. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So I'm. She's I'm, a local celebrity. She is a local celebrity, <laughs> <laughs> and she's a she has a great heart. She's yes. A, she's a great yeah. person. So, so um, as as you think about some of the things that you've now uh, you almost got your voice got a voice mm-hmm. um with the benefit of your professor encouraging you and, and pushing you to do that what would be something that you would want um to to share about um maybe about mental illness maybe about uh being a, a, a significant other or a caregiver of someone who has mental illness what would you want uh to share have people know my like biggest thing if I could go back in time was to not be so angry mm. like I just sometimes when my dad has episodes I can I just can feel even now still the anger I felt and it's like I know it's hard to separate yourself mm. from that rage and anger that even you have mm-hmm. when the person's expressing anger but they can't help it right. like my dad had no conscious decision making in anything that he did and they're not their mental illness I don't think anybody is their mental illness. I think they are who they are, and this is just something they suffer from. And it's really important if you're a caregiver or a loved one to really give them the tool, just like being a parent. You you wanna give your kids all the tools in the toolbox, and that's what you need to do to someone that is suffering from something. And I think being compassionate and empathetic really matters because you can't put yourself in their shoes, and you can't really even try but you can be empathetic towards their behavior. Mm-hmm. Not to like enable them, but yeah. to just help them have everything they need to right. get by and to keep them safe. I think safety and mental illness are just so important. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that aren't as privileged as my family in terms of having funding to get their loved ones into facilities or like they just don't have the resources. And I think that's why as a society, these conversations are so critical and yeah. important because I feel very less judgmental towards other people, I think, than the average person. Mm -hmm. Because when somebody acts weird, I think, well, they could have something going on that we can't see. Right. Because mental illness is an illness that you cannot see. Mm -hmm. And I understand we can't see cancer, but we can see people losing hair that are going through treatment. And with mental illness, they look like everyone else. Yeah, yeah. uh, And especially like you were saying, you know, 
where your dad would come in and out in those mm-hmm. moments. And I think that is, you know, it's, it wasn't just a steady decline. Right. And, and it's the, and I think that's just how, how sometimes difficult it is with, with mental illness, with addiction, with d- yeah. different aspects of, um, of when we struggle with those things. And as a, as a, a significant other, as a, as a family member and a caregiver, to be able to not internalize, to mm-hmm. be able to, and I agree with you, the, the to have empathy doesn't necessarily mean that we have to, uh, doesn't equal enabling. Right. Because your, ma- your mom made a tough decision by not allowing dad to come back in the home for her safety as well as your own. It wasn't right. about abandoning your dad. It was about surviving. Surviving. And, yeah. um, Unfortunately, I have been in, um, I run a homicide support group here for the state's, state's attorney's office, and I have a couple families that, um, that have, in the county, who have died as a result of domestic violence. And um, not only did the mother of the children die, but the children were also killed. Mm-hmm. And um, in those cases, I don't know if there was mental illness, but there was def- definitely domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and sometimes um, individuals who are mentally ill, there will be domestic violence as well. Not not always. Not always, but sometimes, but it, yeah. But it can happen. And so I, I give your mom a, a ton of credit for having the strength and the and the courage to be able to do that. That must yeah. have been extremely hard. We had someone just recently um, on the show, um, Jason, who talked about his mother made some different decisions. And, uh, and as a result of those different decisions, um, he was victimized and he was impacted. And so I give your mom a lot of credit yeah. for having um, that strength as well as um, all the time and all the years that um, you as well as her put into doing the best you can to take yeah. care of that. I think um, like another thing just with being a caregiver or a family member of someone mentally ill, like whatever they're diagnosed with, I think it's important to like separate it from the individual yeah. because I remember so many times hearing my dad was an addict and I thought, no, he's not. Like, the whole time, it's like, well, he drinks when he's on medication, but he wasn't an addict before. Right. He was mentally ill. And we just, as a society, we are so good at labeling things. Sure. We label clothing sizes. We label skin color. We yeah. label religion. Yeah. We just have all of these labels automatically given. And yeah. um, it's really, when it carries over to mental illness, to a lot of people, it's very profound. It's yeah becomes their identity like when you say someone is an addict they're going to identify with that or you're schizophrenic or you're having schizophrenic symptoms with my dad it was like he had schizophrenic symptoms but I'm sure he heard it as this is what you are yeah and it's just very difficult for people to be umbrellaed almost under this title and it's like that's not who you are what do you like to do because everybody with a mental illness is different they have different hobbies they're loved by different people and I think as like a caregiver too it's important that you don't stigmatize yourself because we did and if I could go back and change that I would have rather been more open during the time than my dad's sick whispering to my mom what should we take him home now or what do we do so no one sees or my mom whispering that to me I would have rather had it be a more open thing but I do understand at the time the only thing that we were talking about was suicide and depression and now we're having all these conversations about bipolar disorder and multiple personalities and things that are also under the mental illness umbrella yeah and and exactly what happened though i can understand why your mom wanted to try to protect 
um, using that silence, even though I definitely think there were side effects of that, because when it did get exposed, um, that is when you started getting um, scrutinized, and as you as you mentioned, the word that you didn't identify with then, but it would be labeled as, as bullying. So. Yeah. So, Ellie, as we wrap up, I know that you have, uh, you know, obviously now you have a platform and you have a voice, mm-hmm. and now you're becoming more and more, not, you've had the experience of what you've gone through, and now you have some education, and yeah. you're going into the nursing field. Um, what would be, uh, what do you see yourself wanting to do? Like if in five years from now, what would you, what would you like to be doing? I'd like to be an infertility nurse practitioner. Well, like in school for it, I guess, technically. Sure. Because I'll have to have two or three years of experience, but I love school. My parents are teachers, so, like, you kind of have to. But um, I'm very excited to pursue that profession because I think even being an RN, I want to be in trauma Mm -hmm. because a lot of those people that come in will potentially have side effects to things. And I think coming from the background I come from, the empathy I would have would be so sincere and the care that I would give people would be just very well-rounded and I would be very aware of things. So I'm very excited for that, but I'd like to maybe have a dog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's about it. But okay. just going to graduate school really cool. matters to me and okay. pursuing a degree because I feel very privileged to like live in a country where we're able to have education as sure. women and do pursue whatever we so choose to pursue in college that was the first time I learned about the parts of the world where a lot of people don't have access to education so it made me appreciate it more a little late to the party but it definitely made me appreciate it sure well I think uh, you definitely have a story um, and you have your own your own story unfolding and um, and I'm so grateful that you've already have started learning the benefits of um, that setbacks aren't who you are is just a part of your journey yeah. and, and, and who you can become because of that. So, yeah. so thank you very much for coming yeah, on the show and, and being part of this and your story and your message and just what you're trying to do with your life and are doing with your life is exactly why it's so important um, to be putting this out. Yeah, so. I think it's phenomenal you have this platform and are just able to use many people that you meet or know within the community to share because these are conversations that need to be happening, and it helps destigmatize everything that's discussed here. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Allie, yeah, and good you. luck uh, in Loyola this uh, coming thank year. Thank you. And, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk soon. Yes. So. So uh, thank you very much for joining us today um, on the journey, and we look forward to having you back next week. Thank you.